and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Spectre. I'm delighted today to be joined by the one and only Keith Stoddart. Keith, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's actually great to be here, Nathan, and I'm privileged to be taking part in an episode of Spectre. Yeah, perfect, Keith. Thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, just to fucking uh, just begin with a wee, you know, introduction from yourself, you know, who you are, your affiliations and everything else in between. Okay, I'm currently the chairperson of the Communist Party of Britain Scottish uh, Committee. Uh, we're a federated party, so we have regional, um, district and regional um, chairs, and obviously in the nations like Scotland and Wales, you know, we have national chairs just because of the makeup of the so-called United Kingdom. Um, I'm a member of the Communist Party and have been for 49 years. Next year I'll be 50 years. And out with the Communist Party work, I'm Secretary of the People's Assembly in Scotland, I'm Secretary of Scottish Venezuela Solidarity, and I'm active in my trade union, and I'm Chair of Unite West of Scotland Community Branch. Cheers, Keith. That's some CV, uh, I suppose, in 50 years. It's pretty good to rack up that amount. So, yeah, just starting off with our first sort of uh, point in question then, you know, uh, the Communist Party of Britain, you know, looking to see, you know, its history, its origins, uh, and especially where it is now, given the, the current crises we're, we're seeing uh, plaguing across Britain uh, and indeed the globe. Well, the Communist Party of Britain, as such, uh, was only established in 1988. But in reality, our history goes back over 100 years because uh, almost everyone who founded the Communist Party of Britain in 1988 had been a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which was the, the dominant Communist Party uh, throughout the 20th century in Britain. It became fraught with difficult internal problems around the way the party was moving. Um, there was a purge against more traditional Marxist-Leninists and they left. Uh, and then when the Communist Party of Great Britain dissolved itself uh, in 1991, uh, dissolving itself into the democratic left, which in reality was neither. However, they took the assets um, and all the properties of the CPGB. So the CPB is uh, rose out of the ashes like a phoenix from the CPGB and has slowly built back to being what it is. Our greatest strength is that the grouping who were the more traditional communists kept control of the daily paper, the Morning Star, which although not an actual Communist Party publication, comes out six days a week uh, and its editorial policy is determined by the party's programme, which is the British uh, Road to Socialism. So uh, I think we're unique in having access to a daily press uh, in the English language. So it's not so much that we have a huge circulation. It runs at over 10,000, probably around 11,000. 
It's available on a number of different platforms. But what's really important about it is the access that communists have to key people within the uh, trade union and labour movement. You've got left labour people, you've got um, people within the trade union movement. It goes into the hands of community activists, trade union activists, uh, progressive activists uh, across the place. So our reach is, is much greater and it's a valuable resource and it makes the party quite recognisable and identifiable when we're on demonstrations and such like. I think we've always punched, as communists in Britain, we've always punched above our weight. And I think we're returning to that position. Uh, when it were established in the 1990s, uh, there was a, we lost a whole generation of people because, as uh, we were told, the loss of the Soviet Union meant the end of history. But what in reality happened was that people were looking at other ways of engaging politically uh, beyond parties, uh, which means that we are now in a situation where the party membership is probably in the main over 50 or under 30, but that middle sort of range we lost through all the shenanigans that was going on in the 90s and uh, the early days of the 21st century. Yeah, cheers Keith, thanks for that. Uh, I, I could probably dedicate uh, countless episodes to the history yes. of the party, yes. uh, so we would be here for a while talking about that. Uh, obviously I think the, the party, as you mentioned, you know, it does have a really rich history. Uh, you know, it's not always been, been smooth sailing, but certainly, you know, in the uh, iconic actions uh, such as Cable Street, uh, the efforts for the International Brigade have been, been really aspiring and uh, really showcased, I guess, the like you mentioned, punching above uh, well, wait. So yeah, just to move on to uh, the next point then, when you know we talk about the Communist Party in Britain, uh, obviously this podcast focusing uh, here in Scotland, you know, what was com- uh, what was the legacy of communism uh, and the Communist Party uh, of Britain's involvement uh, in Scotland through its, you know, its actions, uh, its history and the sort of legacy, uh, I guess, that's been placed. Well, we're fortunate in that it uh, been one of the few places that actually had communist representation in the Westminster Parliament. Um, Walla Gallagher, Paisley man, who dedicated his life to the Communist Party and, in fact, to the workers' movement generally. So I think that, that would have been the high point, you know, when we had over 40,000 people in the immediate post-war years. And that was because the troops coming back from um, the Second World War I think they recognised that they were coming back to the same country they had left and what was it they were coming back to? You know, they'd had the hungry 30s, um, they had the poverty, poor housing, uh, unemployment, uh, and I think a lot of them came back saying it would never return to that, that we just fought a war. And I think being exposed to the example of what was then the only socialist country, to the Soviet Union, you know, they were part of the biggest Antifa uh, alliance the world had ever seen, you know, when they came in. And I think the fact that the sacrifices the Soviet Union made, you know, where three out of every four people who died in the Second World War, despite the Soviet Union only joining in 1941, uh, were, were Soviet citizens. I, th- I think that was something that resonated uh, with a lot of people. And when they came back, there was big moves for you to to try and emulate some of the positive aspects of the Soviet Union, but also to challenge capitalism in all its forms. 
And rebuilding Scotland, we saw communist influence post-war in all the major industries. And, and Scotland was a place with heavy industry. You know, you had the mining, you had the steelworks, which obviously are complementary because you need the coal to run the to make the steel and then the steel the products there you know we had the shipbuilding we had heavy engineering we had you know all the ancillary trades like boiler makers and I don't just mean the members of the GMB I mean the folk who actually made the boilers for the steamships when I left school um, there's 26 yards in the Clyde today there's two plus the one that doesn't make ferries and um, you know we were we were embedded in that I mean but more importantly, just being embedded in the unions that were embodied in the wider movement and the STUC and especially through the trades councils because the trades councils um, represented a link between community issues and trade, gen uh, trade union issues and marrying the two to, to move forward. Um, as a young man in the early 80s, I was involved in tenants movements involved in organising rent strikes and the like. And this is before the sales of council houses. And one of the interesting things was that the community leaders in tenants association, community associations and the like, they were invariably people who were shop stewards, they were branch secretaries of trade unions and conveners of big works. Uh, and I think we were, so we were embedded in both. The loss of council house and the selling off of council house and, uh, meant we'd lost that base. But we still hold on to it in places uh, like Govan. And as the battle that's taking place to save the houses in Mary Hill at the Winefair Barracks, I mean, the, the core leadership there are communists and, and YCL members, you know, often both. So I, I think we're, we're recreating that. But our... The big thing was in, in Scotland, and it's quite ironic, is Home Rule for Scotland has always been a communist call. Now, when we're talking about Home Rule, we're not talking about separation. What we're talking about is having rule within Scotland that is appropriate to the uh, needs of the nation. We have a different legal system, a different educational system. We have a history that goes back years and years and years. And the reason why we don't want separation is because there's five million folk in Scotland. There's a coming up for 60 million in the rest of the whole of the island. The bulk of the wealth in this island is um, at the bottom end, London in the, and around about there. And what we believe is that that money has to be more evenly distributed throughout the country. So we believe in devolution. And the first call actually for a devolved parliament in, in Scotland actually came from communists. Communists who were active within the STUC, uh, Mick McGahey, in 1973, maybe 74, just after the work-in, saw that the, the work-in showed that we could do things for ourselves. It showed that we had the skills and it showed that we had the the political nous to make decisions for ourselves. And we wanted a parliament. And as he described it, a Scottish parliament would be a workers' parliament, one that looked after workers' interests. Now, it hasn't quite worked out like that. But that is still the aspiration, and it's an aspiration that we and our comrades in Wales and across England, where we believe in a progressive federalism and devolving power as close to the people who are going to use those services so that they can dictate what the services do what they, to best meet the needs of the localities. And that's always been about getting down close to the people. Up until 1974, there was quite a few areas that had communist councillors. And that's because you were in smaller areas 
um, smaller combinations of, of towns and boroughs. And that meant that the people standing were actually local people who knew that and got res- great respect. And right up to 74, we had people. Now, people did continue to be communists after that, but they were few and far between. But that was when things were at their height and we had, you know, serious um, contenders for ruling Clyde Bank in the shape of Finlay Hart and Arnold Henderson. And even Jimmy Reid was a local councillor and, you know, people like that. So we've always tried to work within the people. I think uh, it was Mao that actually said that... Um, True revolutionaries should move through the people like a fish through water. And I think that's what we tried to do and continue to try and do today. Yeah, thanks for that, Keith. I think that's a really great insight, uh, especially on a Scotland level. I think, you know, certainly inspiring and seeing that history that's been been showcased, obviously, as a member of the YCLN party, you know, being able to see both the efforts historically from uh, both the party and the league in Scotland has is, is always been, you know, something that's uh, inspired me. Uh, and and my comrades to you know push forward as well yeah i think one area that being in scotland actually made us uh, acutely aware of the need to do something for the fight for peace was the fact that we've got uh, just 40 minutes from where we're sitting just now you know the biggest nuclear arsenal i think probably in the world as in the one place so cnd you know scottish cnd cnd the peace movement generally has always um, got good value from the communists in, in fighting for its position. And in fact, Bruce Kent, I remember, who was the General Secretary of CND Britain, I remember him actually saying at a meeting one time, were it not for the communists and the Quakers, the campaign for peace would have fallen by the wayside because it was very much uh, peaks and troughs. And at times there were more troughs in the fight for peace, especially at the height of the Cold War. Um and as I say, I think we'll get the singer's record and it's worth making note of somebody like um, Alan, Dr Alan McKinnon, who for many years was uh, the chair of the CND in Scotland. Uh, and he definitely kept it at the top of the um, political agenda, but mo- not just on top of the political agenda, constantly out in Nagasaki Day, leafleting, putting out journals, putting out discussion papers. And also for a nation like Scotland where we're, heavily heavily dependent on the uh, armaments industry uh, as our industrial base as we saw just recently Talis just got a hundred Talis and Linthouse and Govan just got a hundred and ninety four million pound order from the Westminster government to uh, build guidance systems for drones that will then be built elsewhere in Scotland and so on so the important thing about communists within the peace movement was we weren't just saying get rid of all these terrible jobs that are creating weapons of destruction, but what? how can we best use the undoubtedly highly skilled workforce to do something that's socially useful, that's something that is actually producing good for humanity instead of potentially ending humanity altogether. Uh, and I think that's that's something that both through the STUC and resolutions, often up against uh, opposition from trade unions who couldn't see past the jobs and didn't realise that creating good, literally green and sustainable jobs was far better for workers rather than destroying their brothers and sisters in other lands for the profit of not them but for the big multinationals and to try and uh, stamp down on any attempt that were made to try and create a different order 
from capitalism. And we see that continuing with the pressure they've got in Cuba through the blockade, Venezuela and throughout the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess just what you've said there, you know, for the highlights, you know, the historical aspect of communist involvement across a number of movements, I think, uh, especially as you've said the CND really important especially with the SNP's continued drive to be just another pawn uh, in NATO purely just to fill capability gaps uh, with the likes of Norway uh, essentially selling the, the workers of Scotland once again uh, up the river of imperialism and you touched on there just talking about the history uh, especially in Scotland going towards the likes of devolved powers and uh, you know the, the role that communists played uh, and the the drive uh, and for the creation uh, of a Scottish Parliament. Uh, you know, Scotland's certainly a hot topic uh, when it comes to talks of independence uh, in Britain. Uh, and I think it's something that uh, is, you know, an ever-growing subject and certainly changes, uh, I, I guess, every year on the political landscape. You know, coming myself from uh, before my time in the, the Leaguer Party, being in the SNP uh, and the views I held towards independence had completely drastically changed since my time being in, in the party and league and recognising, you know, the true class unity uh, that's needed on Britain. And as we see, you know, there's been many sort of great publications put forward by the party, uh, not just years ago, but uh, especially recently. Uh, one that springs to mind is also the one by John Foster uh, on, you know, nations and working class unity in Britain. So it's just to see if you can give us, you know, a wee sort of rundown on, you know, the the party stance, certainly, uh, you know, on the, the nations in Britain uh, and, you know, the na- uh, perhaps a nation uh, or occupation that we, we can test just across the sea. Well, in actual fact, you and I share a history. I don't know if you actually know that. But um, 1968, I actually campaigned for uh, Winnie Ewan in the Hamilton by-election. And I was actually, for many years, a member of the SNP up until the early 70s. It was a phase that I think I I grew out of, uh, along with being a Christian. Uh, I went to Ireland to work a Christian and a nationalist and came back an atheist and a communist. Uh, And... That was in 1974 when I joined the Communist Party here. But that's maybe for another <laughs> thing. Um, I think in in Scotland, I think in Scotland we have a good sense of identity. And that's a good thing. But what I think we don't have is we don't have a, we don't agree with Scottish exceptionalism. Scotland needs to stand up to the fact that we were the middle managers of empire. And, you know, when people talk about the Scots travelling all the world, all over the world proudly, often it was either as soldiers to actually ensure that the natives didn't rise up, or it was once we had a established power, uh, be it in India or elsewhere, Africa and uh, in the Far East, all over the place, we were the middle managers who kept the trains running to make sure that we got the exploited products and the raw materials out got them over here and turned into manufacturing and then sent them back to the colonies um, and supplying them. So we had, we didn't have a good relationship internationally. We may have thought we did by travelling the world, but we were there to keep people suppressed, be it economically, be it socially, be it culturally, you know, in Africa, you know, when we brought in the missionaries to run schools and such like. And I remember... Um, 
that uh, I come from Renfrew and both, I think it was Kenneth Kayunda and Hastings Banda actually came to university in Glasgow and basically learnt to be Scottish Presbyterians and uh, advocates of capitalism, you know, and whereas there were more revolutionary and more progressive forces in those countries at the time of liberation uh, and we consistently backed the wrong ones. Uh, and that's Scotland and Britain. It's also worth noting that when the compensation um, for slavery came about, and the compensation for slavery was not in fact for the slaves, uh, it was for the owners of slaves, proportionately Scotland got the greatest amount of wealth anywhere. It's one of the reasons why uh, Scotland historically up until beaching had such a diverse and wide-ranging um, railway network was because coinciding when the compensation for your slaves being freed was just the start of the railway boom. And that then was radically invested. So even if you like our present day uh, reasonable, okay standard of living is is still on the back of slavery. Uh, we might not bring the goods over here, but the investment into our infrastructure happened as a result of the compensation. And I think sometimes... Uh, Nationalists especially go for a Scottish exceptionalism that we are naturally progressive. We are not like them. But then you look at things like, you know, um, um, homosexuality was decriminalised a lot later in Scotland than it was in other parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, so, you know, we weren't that progressive. And there is also the shameful fact that either Irish racism or uh, anti-Catholic sentiment, uh, depending on, you know, how you view it, uh, as a stain in our past, you know, where certainly when I was serving my time as an electrician, it would have been un unlikely. I cannot think of a single peer of mine at that time who came from a Roman Catholic background. Roman Catholics were pushed to one side. And that, again, is getting written out of the narrative of Scotland. And it's all been Jock Thompson's Burns and, you know, Brothers Beef or all that. and all that, as Burns would put it. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. You know, I, I think in the political lens, as, as some folk view it, you know, Scotland uh, and its relationship with Britain as a whole, uh, some people tend to view Scotland as a colony, which is nothing short of absolutely obtuse thinking uh, and almost insulting to the many colonies, uh, as you've mentioned, that Scotland played a major part in, you know, either as foot soldiers or the continued exploitation of its people. Uh, and I think as well it can... Uh, you know, completely ignores and is in a sense historical revisionism to completely wipe the hands free uh, of, you know, what Scotland's done in the past and, you know, even in uh, sort of more recent times, obviously the Black Watch probably springs to mind, uh, you know, in actions in Ireland and, you know, even even to present with, you know, the fact that we're still uh, have an SNP government in place that's continuously advocating uh, for membership back into the EU. Uh, and to be the lapdog of uh, the US and NATO imperialism shows, again, no remorse. And instead, you know, as you've said as well, this uh, air of exceptionalism. Uh, you know, I don't know how proud we can be uh, of exceptional drug deaths and poverty mm -hmm. uh, and the lack of social housing. But I think, you know, you touch on there, certainly, you know, the attitudes felt, uh, you know, in the historical aspects of Scotland's involvement in, in the British Empire as well. And when talking about, you know, the different nations and obviously we mentioned before, you know, the devolved powers and that and the, uh, advocating for that, you know, uh, Ireland is, is certainly a, a subject to come up, the, the north of Ireland. I think, you know, some people 
uh, I guess, internationally. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's just the, the American so-called leftist sissy on Twitter, uh, a website I should spend little time on than I do already. Uh, you know, viewing viewing Britain as, and, and certainly the com- uh, movement of communism uh, in Britain, uh, still advocating, you know, for the subjugation of, you know, Ireland and certainly the, the occupied counties. I'm just looking to see, you know, if you can give, you know, an ex- explanation into, you know, the parties certainly history and campaigning for the rights of uh, the Irish people, uh, especially in, uh, in the north of Ireland. I think it's probably a, a good subject to cover on today uh, episode of the po- podcast, given, you know, uh, the anniversary uh, of the assassination assassination uh, of the class traitor Michael Collins, uh, you know, and the legacy left behind mm-hmm. for the the north of Ireland as it stands. Well, the party's position is unequivocal. We have since our first day of existence, and by that I mean in the nineteen twenties, uh, believed that Ireland her own. It's the title of a book by Tommy Jackson, a leading uh, Irish communist who lived in Britain. Um, We have always had um, Irish migrants to Britain in the Communist Party, and they have ensured that we've had the the position in Ireland that Ireland's issues are Ireland's people's issues to address. Uh, We recognise that there are two, if you like, jurisdictions. So in the same way as um, we operate, in a different way from comrades down south because of different legal systems. But that doesn't mean that we go for breaking up the unity of the, the islands, either Ireland. Ireland will be one, uh, whether it's uh, through a referenda or just through a gradual realisation by the loyalists in Northern Ireland that they are more British than the British and the, the British state sees them as a pest uh, rather than as an asset. Uh, and they'll realise that they're getting, they have always been sold out. I remember talking to uh, loyalists in Belfast where their realisation was the slums in the Shankill were every bit as uh, horrendous as the slums in the Pound Loney and the, the Falls Road. And that would be the base from which we start, is we don't go in arguing in Ireland, or the Irish parties don't go in arguing for a united Ireland. They make it clear that's part of their policy, but they argue on the class issues, that which unites the people. And I think it's significant that in Ireland that the one place where you will find at the very worst times of the troubles, people working together in the best interests of their class and their community was in the trade union movement, often at great cost to themselves. And I think that not being sectarian uh, in any sense of the word in Ireland is the key to the, the respect that the party has. It's not a mass party. We support them in their efforts to unite communities in the same way as we support efforts to unite communities here, be it on economic grounds, social grounds, on religious grounds. We're an anti-racist, anti-imperialist party, so how could we be otherwise? Yes, yeah, spot on there, Keith. Uh, I think that's a fantastic analysis. So yeah, just coming off the the back of that, then obviously talking about you know uh, the party stance, you know, uh, and in terms of Britain and how you know there's a clear need for working class unity uh, across its nations. Uh, I guess as you mentioned previously, in the likes of you know the party's history uh, and the damaging effects of Euro communism, uh, as it uh, became known as. You know, uh, the legacy of that is a legacy in itself, uh, not only to obviously the party, but 
uh, certainly to ideas uh, and you know strains of ideology that have uh, cropped up since then so just looking to see if you can give us you know an insight into you know uh, the damaging effects of Eurocommunism here in Britain for the party and you know the the kind of ideas and you know ideologies that sprung from it that showed us that it had no foundational base and uh, after uh, the split you know essentially crumbled. Yeah it's interesting many people say that Thatcher's greatest um, achievement was Tony Blair but in actual fact Tony Blair I think only existed uh, in the manner in which he did was because of the undermining of the trade union and labour movement that happened with the Eurocommunist uh, minority within the Communist Party of Great Britain I mean their view was that class didn't matter what did Tony think? They also saw for going that um, what they called new social for- forces, gay rights, um, the women's movement, um, you know, the peace movement. Instead of seeing this as all those very important struggles as all part of the class struggle, they tried to separate it off um, into you can be this, you can be that, you can be other, uh, and classes are an irrelevancy that we're all middle class now. Now, it's fair to say that standards of living in the 1970s are probably the best they've ever been for the working class. We had reasonably full employment, we had very strong uh, trade unions, thanks primarily to the liaison committee of the Defence of Trade Unions, which was a a lay-led cross-union organisation led by and promoted by communists. But that didn't take away the underpinning all the problems that people had with their social class. Women are doubly exploited by both class and the, their sex. Uh, similarly, gay people... It's easier to be a gay man in a, the upper class than it would be to live in a council scheme similar to which I grew up on. Uh, hopefully that's changing, and it's correct it's changing, but it's still the class persecution is the one that we had to fight about. I mean, shamefully, under Eurocommunism, we had serious disagreements within the party about supporting the miners, and people were more interested, uh, if you like, in arguing arcane arguments about whether there should have been other new ballots in order to prolong the strike, to extend the strike, and so on, instead of seeing that the miners were literally in the forefront of the industry. And I think we only we argued at the time to, to save the pits. We didn't argue that the pits should remain for all eternity, but people should remain in employment, and similar to what I was saying earlier on, but we should be looking at alternatives. We now know that fossil fuels are no good. We now know that fossil fuels are hellish for the planet. The planet might survive by getting rid of us, and that may be what it's planning to do with the climate crisis we have just now. So that caused a serious split, and that alienated a lot of our support within the the industrial sector within the trade union movement, that led either to people becoming antagonistic towards us or just walking away from the struggle altogether. There was more discussion probably around what I would see as peripheral, as a young father at the time, what I would have seen as peripheral issues than, you know, about housing costs and so on, attacks on council housing. And it's interesting that many of those people who are leading a if you like Eurocommunist people like David Aronovich is now a fanatical, almost a permanent fixture on Radio 4, attacking uh, anti-communist, and, but also more importantly, attacking uh, the very idea of social change. Others like um, Sue Slipman, 
who was a very senior member of the EC. She went on to become a founder member of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, and if you look around on the people who proudly claim to be ex-communists and purport to be on the left within the Labour Party, many of them don't operate very left at all. And those are the people, and they, they basically quite literally destroyed the legacy of, you know, 80 years of work by communists quite literally at the coalface and in the industry to, to make changes and shamefully went off with millions of pounds worth of party assets. But it's something that I think that we've rallied to, we've built up, we've got premises. Communist Review has replaced Marxism Today. Uh, we're now, I think, we're on our eighth issue. You know, so these things are moving on. We're regraining the ground. And most importantly, and you're part of this, is we have a thriving YCL. I do not know of another political party on this island that has a, an active a youth cadre force in the way that we do now. So I'm actually very hopeful and very optimistic for the future. That doesn't mean that we're going to have a new dawn tomorrow and everything will change. But I think that people getting into key positions in the trade union and labour movement uh, means that we can build what we had in the past uh, again and probably much sooner than I thought would have been possible. Yeah, cheers for that, Keith. I think that's really well explained, you know, the effects of the Euro-Communist movement and its damage it done, obviously, to the party itself and, you know, where we see uh, these many hacks now is essentially either being full-on anti-communists grifters uh, or as you've said you know not being involved with the the class struggle uh, at all and i guess when we talk about you know you know the effects of euro communism uh, you know the britain wide scale taking that back here to to scotland and and certainly what it meant uh, and again coming back to you know the, the ideas that dawned since then and uh, i guess that can be contributed to you know a, a sort of rise in, in sympathy for the the EU as we've seen it in Scotland, you know, an, an unequivocal, uh, you know, an unchallenged approach to uh, EU membership, the various you know <laughs> implications that that come with, with being uh, a member of the EU, uh, and certainly I guess it draws back to you know the fact that Britain has been so divided uh, by the ruling class that when it comes to, to votes on this, uh, var various opinion and, you know, challenge from, uh, you know, both here in Scotland, England uh, and Wales, uh, you know, and the, the ideas and false promises that's uh, essentially promised to uh, either nation uh, in regards to membership and what they'll get uh, from it as well. So it's just to see if you can give us, you know, uh, a wee bit of an explanation to what, uh, obviously Eurocommunism had for, for us here in Scotland and, you know, probably where we find ourselves now with it. Well, I think one of the things is it tried to change the position on the European Union or the common market, as it probably was at that, or maybe even the EEC, European Economic Community, probably at that point. Uh, I think it was just by putting doubt and division into the labour movement. I mean, you know, you can get uh, crazy in... in conspiracy theories I mean I don't necessarily subscribe to it but I'll tell you this the state couldn't have done it eh, as well as the Eurocommunists did in terms of splitting the movement and, and trying to pull it away from its core they didn't oppose I mean we had shameful attacks in party journals attacking the shop stewards movement as if they were an irrelevancy and claiming that eh, the shop stewards movement were only interested in either self-aggrandisement or getting facility time so they didn't have to do real work. 
and such like, which which was a trend. They didn't see the value in in the trade unions. They didn't see the how trade unions were developing. And as I say, they put the effort into building alliances with people who were either antagonistic towards us, antagonistic towards us as a class, and um, going up blind alleys that you know getting in fact liberation in terms of your sexuality which is a good thing but that doesn't stop the oppression that you're receiving because of your class position so i mean it wasn't so much about sexual orientation it was a problem it was about class orientation and that was about orientating away from us they all said questionable positions on the socialist countries now i traveled greatly to the socialist countries uh, if you're asking me as a young industrial worker in in Renfrew, living in a council house eh, with poor social services and poor public services, and then I would go and look and struggle to just pay bills and we'd go to somewhere like the GDR where, you know, fixed rents, the price of bread hadn't gone up since 1953. Now, they would, rather than eh, pointing out that, eh, you know, secure employment, eh, free childcare access to reproductive rights and a whole series of things, they would focus on what they viewed as democratic deficits. Um, and I think ultimately the the, the Eurocommunist movement, it wasn't as strong perhaps in, in Britain as elsewhere, but overall I think it then led to Gorbachev's attempt to address the democratic deficit as, as it was seen rather than recognising that uh, there were economic questions that had to be addressed and also not taking into account that a lot of the propaganda coming in from the West, which echoed some of the concerns of the Eurocommunists, gave people in Eastern Europe a very false impression of what it was here. Certainly, I took uh, part in quite a lot of exchanges with the GDR, youth groups both back and forth. And one of the interesting things was, I think, during that time, we had probably about 1,300 people did exchanges up until probably from 86, 85 up till 1990. And what was interesting was not one person defected. Not one person. Now, we didn't paint an especially negative picture here. We just showed them how things were. And I think for a lot of the Eurocommunists, they saw that as something that shouldn't be happening because they were a uh, socialist countries were not worth supporting and they hadn't come as far along not recognizing you know that in 1922 when the uh, Soviet Union came into being that it had a very poor industrial base a lot of it actually had been foreknowned uh, and yet 19 years later they took on the biggest military industrial complex the world had ever seen and are responsible for the liberation of Europe and uh, the defeat of Nazism. Uh, something I think that we should be eternally grateful for, you know. And that, I think, was it was a major stumbling block, was what they saw. They would support things. I remember being in Czechoslovakia in the late 60s, um, it, um, you know, when Dubček was a supposed Prague Spring, and I was surprised at the amount of anti-communist material that was available. And also things like postcards of uh, pre-war military people of questionable merit, <laughs> to put it at its best. Um, and the, the, the forced liberalisation of places like uh, Czechoslovakia. I had the privilege of actually meeting Dubček post at the end when it was a Czech Republic and, and Slovak Republic. And he acknowledged that they had... He made mistakes, he'd made error, 
was shocked that it would be so open to somebody like me. And I think they probably felt they had been played. And I think I think probably Gorbachev would have said something similar. I think the big problem was that the socialist countries were naive in their dealings with the West and actually believed. And we see that today where the Minsk agreement has been destroyed. And I am not a fan of Putin. I don't want to see Soviet conscripts being killed any more than I want to see Ukrainian civilians being killed. But in actual fact, what they constantly did was push and make promises. This is the West. And these were programmes that were supported by those who supported Eurocommunism. So they undermined the socialist countries, which was, I think, our greatest strength. Because if you took working people to the socialist countries and they saw what they were doing with limited development without exploitation, then they were invariably impressed. And being Scottish, we were able to do things like uh, have burn suppers in the socialist countries because um, burns, you know, through his poetry, the peasant poet, it wasn't really that, uh, but across the the socialist country, his his anthems, his songs, so he was seen as a Robert Burns was commemorated in a Soviet stamp before he was commemorated in any stamp in Britain. John McLean, you know, first Soviet consul, was commemorated in a a Soviet stamp. This year, the hundredth anniversary of his death. What we're hoping for is maybe a hundred people gathering in Glasgow to mark it. We don't look after what left here. We're too busy to. Uh, going on about some glorious militaristic past rather than progressive past. You know, the Calton Weavers first strike in the history of the world, shamefully rather a uh, forgotten 1787. Similarly, um, you know, the UCS working is about a distant memory. You wouldn't know about it now. But these were battles that were fought and won on a class basis. Even th- what's known as the Radical War of 1820 was in fact... The, the genesis of it, it was, in fact, Scotland's response to Peterloo. So a massacre in uh, Manchester, Chartist-led, uh, Chartist people arguing for basic things like the right to vote, brutally put down, people murdered, had a resonance far beyond Manchester, including Scotland, which I think is an indicator of how embedded this island is each other. We recognise the difference, we value the differences, sometimes we revel in the differences, but most of all what underpins it all is that we are divided by class, not divided by where the accident of birth about where we were born. The devaluation of class that the Eurocommunists did and that we're all middle class now, I think was probably you know, what led to Blair, what allowed Blair to get away with it, allowed Thatcher to get away with far too much because of the divisions they caused during the miners' strike and beyond. Yeah, thanks for that, Keith. I think that's a brilliant analysis, uh, especially, you know, the two points you made there, I guess, the you know, the Eurocommunist movement and uh, the effects which had of, you know, devaluing uh, our own sort of like heroes here, uh, the struggle for uh, the emancipation of the working class, uh, as well as as we've seen of, you know, workers in Scotland uh, going abroad to uh, socialist countries. Uh, one of the ones that sticks out for me was, uh, and I, I believe I wrote a, a challenge article on this, of workers going over to Ukraine post-war. Uh, obviously, Ukraine suffering the most destruction uh, with how, how badly it was affected. Uh, and these trade unionists uh, from all different, you know, uh, walks of industry coming over and seeing you know uh, the life that the uh, Soviet people were, were rebuilding and uh, that inspiration I guess that they got from that especially when we look at you know the contrast in uh, Russia and Ukraine just now back then uh, obviously 
uh, two sister nations and you know the the class unity that was felt you know many people especially workers from moscow coming over and being responsible uh, and the, the rebuilding of ukraine also yeah it's interesting you saying that uh, i remember mick mcgarry coming back from a visit to the soviet union it might actually have been to the donbass to the mines there and uh, he was remarking on the fact that they actually had the shower facilities and stuff actually underground so that you came up clean. And he they had been pressurising in the, the minefields here for n- not even showers down below, but for a f- fresh water because what the miners had to do was take a bottle of water with them. You know, eh, to drink while they were doing their eight, ten hour shift. And they, they kept getting told about there was all these eh, mechanical engineering problems and that, and just it wasn't feasible, da da da. However, when they developed eh, water cooled um, coal cutting machines, which would mean getting them down and reducing the amount of miners in a pit, they had managed to overcome all that and get the water down there to cool the machines that were cutting coal. <laughs> it's just, I. Hey, that was a wee story, an anecdote uh, at a meeting. It illustrates the point, you know, let people see what it was actually like. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at Scotland's, you know, political landscape now with the SNP in power, you know, I guess the, you know, this, the disgrace and, and certainly the betrayal of, you know, international workers that the SNP continues to advocate, you know, uh, for continued... Uh, so-called military aid into Ukraine, uh, you know, the, the blood of Ukrainian and Russian workers spilling once again uh, on that soil is a, com- a complete betrayal to the workers of Ukraine uh, and Russia as well and all those uh, in the Soviet Union who, who fought and died uh, fighting fascism uh, and going back to that, that pamphlet I mentioned, uh, the number one question uh, in that to every single uh, delegate to the Ukraine was what are the people of Scotland doing for peace and I think you know looking out as as a pretty grim situation we're facing now you know there is on a youth level certainly within the trade union movement here uh, of you know some sign of a push away you know from from what many of the the careerists within the trade union movement continue to push for and escalations to war uh, and armament with motions being passed at the STUC youth conference uh, for further calls to peace and that uh, being uh, seconded and supported by the actual uh, STC youth committee as well uh, so it's not all doom and gloom and I guess it's easy to get into doom and gloom when talking about Euro communism so I think we'll move swiftly on and uh, going again to the history uh, of the party here in Scotland one of the most notable uh, instances uh, or historical instances that sticks out for me uh, and certainly from a documented perspective would be the, the UCS working. Uh, kind of touched on that previously uh, in regards to the communist involvement in there. So just looking to see if you can give us a wee sort of brief history of the, the UCS uh, working, what it was all about and uh, the communist involvement within that because I still meet uh, so many people, obviously the older generation like yourself, <laughs> talking about it whenever uh, we're doing active campaigns within communities and you know you mentioned you're a member of the Communist Party, the Young Communist League. Uh, you know, the way uh, old men and women who, who mention, uh, like you said, communist councillors back then uh, along the Clyde, you know, and, you know, how active the party was and everything. And I think it's quite, uh, uh, for me, certainly my, my first, you know, period in, in the League and Party, you know, was how people who weren't communists or wouldn't class themselves, certainly maybe socialists or hard left leaning, uh, just ordinary working class folk, as you'd, you'd call them, were 
were kind of happy and reminisce on uh, the representation uh, that many of the communist councillors and uh, communist shop stewards uh, in the shipyards had. So, yeah, just to see if you can use a wee uh, rundown of the UCS and that. Okay, it's funny you talk about it as uh, historical. It's actually my youth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I suppose, yeah, okay, the work in 1971. However, I think you have to go just a wee bit earlier than that. Um, And this is how the the work in worked in to an international narrative. 68, you had the student riots that led to general strike in France. You had General de Gaulle fleeing to, who was the, the leader of France at the time, fleeing to Germany you know, to the French barracks in Germany to because they really thought it was going to be a revolutionary time. We had the Black Panthers and um, the United States, um, you know, people, um, you know, shootouts of the police. You had the Vietnam War and the anti-Vietnam struggle. And you also had across Indochina and across Africa, you know, um, various countries coming into being you know, the decolonialisation or what we had hoped would have been decolonialisation of Africa. So it was actually a time of great hope. It was, it was time of um, really things could be different here. Um, internationally, we were moving in one direction and nothing was going to stop us. And the UCS, if you like, reflected some of that, certainly with some of the, the younger people and myself, and with the older uh, comrades who were very active. You had the shop stewards committees. The shop stewards committees, as I say, were heavily influenced by the liaison committee for the defence of trade unions. These had been the people who were fighting, you know, Barbara Castle's bill to restrict trade union freedoms. They had built up networks of shop stewards so not always through the official union structures that meant we had almost had a parallel trade union movement uh, working away. We also had people who had had experience of colonialism and that because of national service we had people who had served in Malaya, people who had served in Korea and places like this who had actually physically been fighting on behalf of capitalism um, and came back with that. I remember talking to some um, comrades who had actually been in Aden, you know, and had been very, had actually become communists as a result of what they had experienced going as young men, and it was nearly all men then. So I think the UCS working worked into, if you like, a different way of doing things, because there was a different way of doing things all over the world at that time, because of all these different struggles, all, if you like, coalescing into the struggle. The UCS won in a similar way uh, to Mrs Barber when people go on about Mrs Barber, the rent strike leader, and how important this was in community organising. And it was very important in community organising. But how Mrs Barber got Churchill and his crew to bring in the Rent Control Act and agree not to put up uh, rents until the end of, at least the end of the war was because they got the support of trade unionists, including Molly Gallagher, Manuel Shinwell and all them, who brought out the munitions workers and the like eh, in support of Mrs Barber's army. So, if you like, that was an early example of the community and the industrial muscle coming together in a common interest. Now, obviously, it was in the interest of the industrial workers that rents didn't go up, but more importantly, it was important they could show that solidarity with the community for the the guy because the guys uh, that you know i think the famous slogan is 
my man's fighting the Hun in France, we're fighting the Hun at home, you know. So, you know, and bringing those two together, I think, was was an example of what communists have always tried to do is unite struggles. And that was key to um, the the UCS winning. The UCS, the, the work in was successful, but it was successful because it got support from across the the whole community of Scotland. I mean, probably one of the biggest demonstrations I've ever been on in my life was walking down Union Street, you know, as part of the UCS. And I remember being at a meeting and there was a baker there, as in a guy who owned a bakery, who was talking about if UCS was to close, he would pay off a third day's workers because if folk weren't going to the yards, they wouldn't need pieces. So therefore, he would need to bake as many rolls or as many loaves and so on. So we had this really bizarre alliance of small and small businesses, small medium enterprises, and then the STUC did a great piece of work where, for every job that would have been lost in the shipyards, there would have been three outside the shipyards that have been lost. All the ancillary trades, the carpet makers that get the carpets for the boats, the upholsterers, the you know, all of that. Uh, and I think that won people to support the struggle who were not our natural allies, people from faith groups, probably more sort of unionist-minded Tories, you know, old patrician types supported it. You get international support, you get support for John and Yoko. Um, and I remember there is the tale that uh, John and Yoko sent a hundred red roses and a thousand pound when a thousand pound was worth a thousand pound and and when this was announced um, in the shop stewards uh, office Lenin sent us a thousand pound an old timer says don't be so stupid Lenin's been dead for years (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah so they attracted uh, you know International support, money from trade unions all over Europe, support for the socialist countries, support from the United States unions. So it brought different trends of the trade union movement. The trade union movement in the States has got a very different tradition from in Britain and in Europe for that matter. But it managed to unify because here was a way of doing something differently. Here was not just striking. Here was we're working. You know, it's no our jobs to sell. It's, um, you know, it's you've not got the right. And that's where the slogan, the right to work, came. And what's interesting was in the first year after the UCS working, I think it was 200-odd work-ins took place. It became a thing that happened. It happened with, um, with the print works. It happened with banner clothing, Lee jeans, a whole series. And one of the interesting things was if you actually look at where a lot of these work-ins took place, they were workplaces that were predominantly women, people who were seen to be hard to organise, people who were seen as being, uh, if you like, soft trade unionists. And it turned out when it came to the bit, they were anything but soft. It extended to, to Caterpillar trucks. There was a whole series of these things. And again, with the Caterpillar working, which was up in Uddingston, Tanach side, one of the first things they did was they kept making the Caterpillar trucks and all the rest of it. But they did this one called, the they built one and painted it pink. Uh, and that was going off to Nicaragua. 
you know, so again, making that link, not just with local community struggles, but with international community struggles, you know, you know, is one caterpillar truck going to make a difference? Probably not. But again, it was that symbolic gesture. It was recognition that struggles go beyond boundaries, that they're international. And probably more people held, heard about uh, struggles in Latin America than they would ever have heard about during that in the same way as, you know, this year we're celebrating or commemorating, not, not much to celebrate, um, you know, the coup in Chile. Probably more people have heard about the atrocities, the death of Allende, the atrocities, the mass slaughter of trade unionists, communists and other progressives because of uh, the Rolls-Royce workers refusing to service the engines that had uh, in the Hawker Hunter jets the British supplied to the Chilean jets. That's a thing, the fact that that gesture by workers who are never likely to be Chile, who in many cases wouldn't have known where Chile was, but that actually resonated and actually made it more of a battle, more of a, a international struggle. And that tremendous gesture was great. Incidentally, Yarrows, which was part of UCS, were building frigates for Chile, and down in Barrow and Furnace, they were building submarines. Again, that, that work was blacked. So I think there was a reason. The UCS was a victory. There's people still working, albeit just in a couple of yards now in the Clyde. But what happened was there was also that raising a class consciousness where people saw that what happened in Govan wasn't any different to terrible things that were happening elsewhere in the world and that we had to have that class unity and that for many years built and you can contrast that with uh, what happened when the refugees came from Chile uh, to Clydeside and uh, it was the Glasgow Trades Council who organised it and we all the different we went and we negotiated with local councils uh, there was a lot more than there are now and we got, I mean, I'll come from Renfrew, a very small borough, you know, um, probably a dozen councillors made up the council, very local. They gave us three houses um, for refugees. The uh, local WRVS, the Women's Royal Voluntary Service, ensured we get uh, the houses furnished to a reasonable standard. Uh, we got uh, support for kids getting into school and so on and so forth. Uh, which is a very different and the, the, everybody was very generous with their time and very generous in ensuring that folk get into employment and such like uh, which is very different to what we see nowadays uh, with the uh, refugees who are getting put in hotels, the hostile environment we have uh, you know, fascist picking outside it which obviously we're responding to down in Erskine uh, and it's a very, and that's just in 50 years, just a very, very different state of affairs um, where we've gone from having celebrations and welcoming refugees uh, to pillaging them. And many people, shamefully, actually saying, oh, they're I've got a shite life because they're stealing my services, they're filling their schools, they're doing this, they're wanting dough money. Before, the, you didn't really have to make the argument about why people are refugees, but how little uh, money they actually get. You know, it's less than a tenner if you're uh, seeking asylum and stuck in a hotel. You admittedly get fed. and But apart from that, you know, it's a pretty miserable life. And also there's no question about where these people are fleeing from. They're fleeing from war. And, you know, they have cultural links with us due either 
through language or through a shared history of colonialism or whatever. Uh, and I think that that's so the the greatest thing the UCS did was create that international solidarity and I would have to say a massive growth in the Communist Party membership and the Young Communist League membership. Uh, I'm actually part of that generation because that's when I came into it. And I think the great example was that the leaders of the UCS working were our neighbours, we were friends. There were people who played junior football, there were people who literally lived round the corner. They weren't people who were coming in high or coming with a fancy notions or all the rest of it. There were people who were embedded in our community because they were our community and they were there and they were actually doing what was best for the class, doing best for our class because it was their class and it built a class foundation. Yeah, cheers for that, Keith. I think that's quite an excellent summary of, you know, both the UCS and as well as various other mm-hmm. industrial disputes that have happened, you know, historically in Scotland, uh, certainly those on an international scale. Uh, and I think what's probably uh, most impressive about the UCS and just the uh, working class solidarity that was achieved was the uh, shop steward committee managed to keep a bunch of Scottish yard workers sober for the duration of it. So no, that's quite impressive. But uh, yeah, I guess, you know, talking about such a, you know, rich industrial history, uh, you know, leading us on to the final point here of, you know, Scotland today. Uh, you know, uh, what's the way forward for the workers as we see, you know, the current climate both here domestically uh, and the influences of what's happening internationally? Well, I suppose the way forward for Scotland and anywhere else in Britain is, is to do with the reindustrialisation of Scotland, is to get away from our dependency on military spending to get away from that. There's lots of work needs done here. You know, it's a £1,000 a month to rent a one-bedroom flat there's folk queuing up uh, for houses, so I think we need... It. The work is there. We create the work. We have an alternative economic strategy, which is about creating wealth within communities. You get everybody in employment. You get everybody in paying taxes. That then gives you the capital to build houses. You build people decent houses. But in order to get them into work, you have to have work that's worth having. Now, we've got a climate crisis. It's ludicrous that Scotland, the Scottish government have essentially sold uh, our uh, alternative uh, fuel strategy using renewables to a Swedish multinational. Uh, we've got plants um, here that can do build all the thing, all the the physical the poles to put the turbines on, build the turbines. The turbines are coming from Scandinavia, and the poles that they go on, the towers are coming from Indonesia. Now, you don't need to be a, a, a genius to think if you're building a tower in Fife and it's getting put up in Perth, Perthshire, just the other side of the, the river, uh, you're, you're not going to have uh, on costs or your carbon footprint is going to be a lot longer. And it also then brings to areas that are decimated by uh, unemployment. And that's what should have happened when, the, when we're closing the pits that people get trained to do those jobs. We have skilled engineers in the oil industry. You can't just say to the workers in England, hey, you've got dirty jobs because then you can put them into alternative economics. I live in a house that you're sitting in just now, built in 1860. It's no um, insulated well. It needs proper retrofitting. Get it so that you don't never need to put a fire on in here. You know, we use passive energy, we use heat pumps, we do all that. All that could be produced within 50 miles of this house. 
and that would be stuff that helps the planet. It helps people plan for the future because they've got secure jobs. And it also means that their families are maybe not growing up in absolute luxury, but they're growing up in reasonably comfortable lives. And most importantly, we need a massive house building uh, programme. And we also need to rebuild our public services. Community centres are shut. Uh, and the background to community centres been shut, pensioners, lunch clubs not been able to meet, uh, pensioners frightened to put on their heating because inadequate pensions. What that all goes back to is uh, the Scottish Government's long-term plan. It's a separate Scotland. They call it independence. So they'll transfer power from Westminster to Brussels and therefore they are trying to live within EU spending limits on public sector services. We're heading into a situation with the, they're trying to create a national care service. What they should be calling it is a national commissioning service because instead of having good, well-organised, with a democratic oversight and professional oversight through local authorities, they're working with charities and the private sector which, and if we look at the homes, are just, in, funnily enough, in the First Minister's uh, constituency in Cardonald. Um, I was just uh, hearing today about the workers in the private care homes are um, uh, about to go on strike, not actually because they've been underpaid, but because they're actually trying to cut their wages. They're actually trying to cut their wages. It's not they're fighting for more, they're, they're fighting to stand still. Uh, and that's the model is that I think many of the nationalists have is for a low wage, low corporation tax, or invite the big gay multinationals and like Amazon and Xerox and that, and we then just become a client economy where they decide, oh, we've got a better deal for Ireland or a better deal for, you know, Laos or Tunisia or wherever, and they're here. They'll get the grants to build the factory, they'll get the relief on rates, They'll uh, get infrastructure, roads put in, so they can get their goods in and out quickly, and all the rest of it. And it's in, in but pay rubbish wages, and they're very anti-union, as we can see with Amazon and the like. So, I think that's not a model for a prosperous future. It's certainly not the recipe for a prosperous future for our class. So therefore, I, I think it is bleak if we go down that road. I think that's what we have to do is we have to fight on a whole island basis to get the wealth that's in the south of England, get it more evenly spread, put that in massive investment into the public sector, into public housing and so on and so forth, so that people have better lives. Uh, and it's not unlike the challenges that were faced with after the war, where we, but we still, after five years of war, six years of war, uh, we were in a position where we could create the national health, we could nationalise the mines, we could nationalise the railways and so on. Uh, unfortunately, what happened with the nationalised industries, once they became modernised, Thatcher came along and privatised them. We can see that's happening by stealth in the health service. Down south, it's maybe not so much by stealth, it's rampant, but it's happening up here as well. You no longer see a dietitian if you've got um, obesity issues. You get paid to go to uh, Weight Watchers. They pay your fees for 12 weeks at Weight Watchers. And if you lose weight, they'll pay for another 12 weeks uh, until you get to your target weight. But if you don't lose weight, you don't get it paid. So it's, it's a poor model, if you like, for the future as it stands. And our position 
is through our campaigning work, through the trade unions and through the pages of the Morning Star, is to argue eh, what could be done, what should be done and what can be done if the spirit's there. And the spirit of 45 shows it can happen, even in the worst of situations. But it won't happen if we're arguing about peripheral issues or arguing about separation. Absolutely spot on again there, Keith. Uh, and I guess, you know, it seems obvious to me and I think, you know, many others that the way forward for Scotland and, you know, Britain as a whole uh, is on a road to socialism, mm-hmm. you know, combating them uh, various, you know, challenges uh, and, you know, the numerous class uh, enemies and class criminals uh, who seek to divide us. Uh, obviously making the excellent point there, you know, uh, and the outsourcing uh, it's occurred in Scotland, you know, Many people in business, especially uh, what springs to mind for me, you know, Scottish power, the likes of Keith Anderson. These these are people who, uh, if they were opposed by the Scottish government, they, they could have, they, they would have had to uh, draw the likes of uh, energy price caps back to uh, the, the pre-October levels, uh, but because the, the Scottish government never seek to challenge that, Anderson and the rest of the board uh, never felt a challenge as well to, to do that. So I think I absolutely, you know, the, the way forward for, you know, what we've seen industrially in this, in this country, you know, being, you know, uh, decimated and, you know, the NHS is, you know, a, a certainly grim aspect now and the way it's being painted forward to be uh, sold into the clutches, you know, of countless pharmaceutical companies in America. We've already seen the damage uh, that's been done they are not just prices for for uh, general treatment in hospitals, but uh, you know how predatory uh, the pharmaceutical companies there in terms of prescriptions and the uh, you know certainly the, the uniqueness here in Scotland with our free prescriptions as well. What that would mean to you know so many uh, people, especially uh, those with disabilities. So yeah, uh, just looking to see now, just you know wrapping up for the end of the show to see if you've got any you know final talking points and uh, whereabouts can we find uh, you uh, and the party on social media well you can look up you won't find an awful lot in my social media because what i do is i pick up things from uh, the communist party scottish pages and facebook and twitter and so on i'm sure that um, nathan will be able to uh, put in a wee link at the end to get to tell where all those are but if you really want to know what the working class are getting up to in britain if you really want to know uh, what people in scotland are thinking and you can do this anywhere in the world because it's uh, available online digitally, is have a look at the Morning Star. Read the Morning Star. As I say, it's in English, um, so therefore it should be accessible to MD uh, in North America. It should be accessible to MD here uh, and this island or the island next door. It's available every day. I think it's um, half a dozen articles you can read a month for free. After that, there's various packages, various bits of access. But that's where you'll find out what the alternative to the BBC is and you'll find out those who are arguing for peace and socialism what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and you'll get the news that you won't see elsewhere. Um, Thanks for giving me the opportunity to be part of this Nathan. Um, This new technology is not my forte. I'm used to standing in the back of a lorry and addressing folk (laughs) rather than sitting into a microphone but I think it's a great initiative that uh, this facility is available uh, and as you were explaining earlier, just with the hits you're getting from literally all over the world, I think is um, great. So well done with the initiative. I hope it's a success. And wherever you are, there's only one struggle that's worth having, and that's the struggle for socialism. Then, Sir Avis, we will win. 
Yeah, perfect, Keith. Thank you again. Uh, and, of course, thank you for inviting me over to do this in person, so you get the honours for the first in-person edition of the Spectre podcast. So thanks again. Uh, and, as always, uh, a pleasure to have you, and I'm sure I'll see you very, very soon. Oh, indeed. Thank you. Thanks, comrades, for tuning in to another episode of Spectre. Be sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening in on, and, of course, share us with your friends, comrades and co-workers. The history of the Communist Party of Britain, especially its history in Scotland, is a proud and ever-stretching history, involved in numerous battles and challenges, both domestically and internationally. It's faced up against external and internal challenges, and as we can see from today, bolstering back up to its strength after the plagueful Euro-Communist split. It's clear from what we've discussed today that workers in Britain share more in common with each other than they do with any capitalist. The English workers have nothing in common with a capitalist who dresses themselves up in the St George's flag. Welsh workers have nothing in common with a landlord who dresses himself up in the Red Dragon. And the workers of Scotland have nothing in common with any imperialist who dresses head to toe in tartan. It's vital that workers in Britain band together collectively to topple capitalism. The party has shown throughout decades of its history that it is the vanguard, that it is putting in the work not just in one avenue but across multiple challenges that the working class face in this country. The workers of Britain have one clear aim, it's to reclaim our past and conquer our future. I'm expressing with my full capabilities And now I'm living in correctional facilities Cause some don't agree with how I do this I get straight and meditate like a Buddhist I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary But my technique is very necessary Blame it on Ice Cube Because he said it get funky When you got a subject and a predicate Add it on a dope beat And it'll make you think Some suckers just tickle me Pink to my stomach Cause they don't flow like this one You know what? I won't hesitate to this one or two before I'm through, so don't try to sing this some drop science Well, I'm dropping English, even if yellow makes it a cappella. I still express you, I don't smoke <laughs> weed or sex Cause it's known to give a brother brain damage And brain damage on the mic don't manage nothing But making a sucker and you equal Don't be another sequel Spread yourself.